This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. For the rest of the hour, we're going to talk about some of our favorite flying spring critters, bees and butterflies, because it's that time of spring where flowers are blooming and the butterflies and bees are out and about, and they have powers and abilities far beyond what you may imagine. And since, according to the UN, tomorrow is World Bee Day, what better way to celebrate than to create a buzz about these potent pollinators? My next guest knows all about what most of us don't know about, what makes bees so great. His book, What a Bee Knows, explores the brains, brawn, and bombastic nature of these creatures and what we can do to protect them. Stephen Buckman, pollination ecologist and author of What a Bee Knows. He's based in Tucson, Arizona. Welcome back to Science Friday. Hi, Ira. Great to be here. <laughs> here we go. It's 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 been like almost 20 years. You were you were on our show back in 2005 and I got to ask you, has the general public's attitude toward these changed anything for the better since then? Well, yeah, the public has certainly caught on to bee declines. We've actually had one bee, Franklin's bumblebee from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, a bumblebee with the smallest range of any bumblebee in the world, probably go extinct. And sad as that is, we have uh, four or five other species, including the rusty patch bumblebee, Bombus affinus, that are also uh, declining as well, uh, perhaps due to some foreign interlopers. We call this pathogen spillover. So we could have had some U.S. bumblebee queens that were collected, brought to European insectaries, commingled with their bees, and brought back with some little microbial hitchhikers. So hmm. we have some things like that happening. You know, I'm glad that you brought up bumblebees to begin with, because as I understand it, there are 21,000 types of bees worldwide. And I've heard that the honeybee is the most studied insect on the planet because they're social. They can live in boxes that humans can control. But how much of what you've learned about what a bee knows and is generalizable to the other 20,000 bees, most of which aren't social? Right. Um, I've, I've studied honeybees and bumblebees and social stingless bees in different places around the world. But mostly I like to hang out with the little solitary bees uh, that nest in the ground. Uh, I like to call these single moms with families to feed. They don't get any help. Uh, they often don't get any respect. Uh, they get blasted with pesticides. But all of these bees are fascinating because they have brains that are the size of a poppy seed with about a million neurons. But they're doing just phenomenal things. They're problem solvers. They're likely self-aware. Uh, they may have a primitive form of consciousness. Uh, we're just really now in the last decade or so figuring out what bees are all about in terms of the inner bee. Well, that's what I want to get into some more. Tell me about in detail these things that you just mentioned, because you argue in your book that bees are sentient. They have self-awareness. They feel pain. They plan for the future. Tell me how we know this. Yeah, well, some of it's a little tricky, obviously, because, well, let's let, let's consider consciousness. I mean, philosophers have been arguing about this for millennia. I mean, how do we even know that another person is conscious? But um, all kidding aside, people are arguing, scientists are arguing about whether 
bees feel pain, for example. And I, I find this a little amazing. When I grab a bee, let's say in the lab, with a pair of forceps, and it gives me an alarm buzz, turns around, and tries to sting me, I think that's a good affirmation that they don't like it. They're feeling something like pain. Bees also have something called nociceptor sense cells along with other insects. That's a good indication that they're feeling noxious stimuli or trying to move away from them, moving out of potential danger. Sentience, uh, we can get a little bit in the weeds on the definition, but I believe that bees are sentient. The The first definition of that is that an animal is capable of experiencing pain, and others have expanded on that definition to include the capacity of them to experience sensations and emotions. But other than perhaps anxiety, I'm not so sure that I'm willing to go quite that far for for bees. Mm-hmm. And, and self-awareness? Yeah. Um, there was an interesting experiment that was done with um, small, medium, and large bumblebees. Uh, basically, as you know, insects don't get bigger as adults. It's all dependent on how much food you ate as a kid. So the uh, the experiment that was done was to train bumblebees to go through a slit to get to some sugar water on the other side. And so here you come as a fat bumblebee, and the fat bees turned sideways to squeeze their way through their little slit and pulled in their legs. So to me and the other uh, researchers that actually did that experiment, that to me indicates that they have uh, keenly aware of, of their body size. So they were self-aware. That's amazing. Uh, you, you, there's even been research that bees can experience PTSD-like symptoms. Yeah. Uh, some experiments by uh, Lars Chitka, a professor in London, he and his students came up with a system where the bees in a little foraging arena were confronted with fake spiders with these little padded foam claws. And if a bee got too close, the foam spider grabbed the bee and held onto it for two seconds. And later, when those same bees were tested, they, you know, wanted no part of that. So they didn't even get close to the uh, robotic spider. That's amazing. Is is this something all insects possess, is this, or is this an anomaly among insects? Well, we don't know yet. So far, uh, it's been mostly researched with fruit flies. So, for example, we know that fruit flies have, uh, for example, an ion channel associated with nociception, that nox- noxious stimuli avoidance, called TRPA1. And it, it's possible that bees also have that ion channel. But again, we've mainly worked with honeybees. They're sort of the white rat of the insect world and a little bit with bumblebees. But most of those others, you know, the nearly 21,000 species of bees around the world, uh, we don't really know much about their behaviors. Because I understand there's been research that bees can recognize different human faces, correct? Yes, yes. (laughs) Do they see you coming (laughs) coming by and and wave? (laughs) Exactly. Well, I think if if you're a a bad beekeeper one day and they recognize your face, you don't want to go there the next time. But but yeah, 
bees, it's not quite so strange if you think about it, but bees on a foraging day have to go out and recognize, um, often cases, dozens of flowers by their shape, their colors, their scent. So maybe identifying a human face is pretty simple compared to what they have to do in terms of learning to work different flowers to get at the pollen and nectar rewards. Right. Speaking of the of flowers, we've all learned in school that when a bee goes out and finds some flowers, it, it comes back to the hive. I'm speaking of honeybees. Maybe the other bees do this, the other social bees. They do some sort of dance and they teach each other things, correct? Well, it is a little oversimplified, but basically back to the 1920s, 30s, and into the 40s, Nobel laureate Carl von Frisch, an Austrian researcher, was one who did most of that work with with honeybees. And it the waggle dance stuff has been refined, and we now think that there are odors and other things involved, and it's not as purely symbolic as we once thought. But by and large, it's pretty remarkable. So the 11 species of honeybees, the scouts go out, they find a productive flower patch, they acquire odors on their bodies, they've got a honey crop full of nectar, they come back, they regurgitate some of the nectar to other bees at the nest, and then they do uh, what is called a round dance if the flowers are close, or a waggle dance if they're farther away. So basically, the bee's orientation on the comb is pointing either directly toward the flowers mm -hmm. or at an angle that is with respect to the uh, the orientation of the bee in the sun. So pretty neat. It is uh, pretty neat. Other bees don't really do that. I mean, bumblebees make some little buzzes in the nest. Uh, some stingless bees put down little odor droplets on vegetation to sort of lead by signpost bees out to... Uh, flowers, but the vast majority of bees in the world have to find flowers on their own, have to navigate to and from them, and then go out again. So pretty, pretty amazing navigational abilities that they have. Do they use like, like ants do? Ants use their sense of smell, correct? To get, to leave trails and pathways. Do bees have a sense of smell that they might go back to a patch of flowers by smell? Or is it purely by navigation? No, it's a combination of optical navigation, the sun compass, their fine memory of, of time. For example, if you put out a reward at a certain time every day, the bees will anticipate that and come back. But it is a mix of that optical navigation and also sense that they can smell from a distance or, as I said, can even be clinging to their body when they get back to their nest. Right. So so bees bees know how to tell time. They do, yeah. By the sun? Right, by the position of the sun in the sky and then just probably an internal clock that is, is pretty accurate. So um, they know when certain kinds of flowers, maybe their favorites, say they're opening in the morning, um, they'll be back there the next morning anticipating when they open up. Amazing. And... You said before how tiny a bee's brain is. How do they get all of this into that tiny little spot? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Of course, it doesn't, it isn't really divided into 
hemispheres and a cerebellum and all the weird parts that human brains have. Um, but it is about a, it is comprised of about 1 million neurons and there might actually be 1 billion synaptic connections. So much smaller than the perhaps 80 to hundred billion neurons in our brains, but they do a lot of amazing things. There, there are structures inside the bee brains called mushroom bodies that look like mushrooms and they do a lot of complex processing and uh, it's likely that memories are consolidated there. Um, we didn't talk about bees sleeping, but hey, go. Yeah. Let me just remind everybody first that this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios, talking with Steve Buckman, author of What a Bee Knows, based in Tucson. Yes. Tell us about sleep. Yeah. Well, bees can sleep a lot, six hours at night, maybe 10 hours during the day. And they go through different stages of sleep. Uh, first, there is a wakefulness type of sleep when their antennae, the feelers, are going like crazy. And then the final stage of their sleep is a deep sleep when they're really quiet. They have kind of a rig rigid posture and their antennae don't move. But really what we, go, what we think is going on is that bees are consolidating um, their navigational memories during sleep. So pretty, pretty interesting stuff. You know, I, I remember back in the 1960s when uh, there was a debate about running the laboratory rats in, in a maze versus studying rats in the wild. Mm -hmm. How much can you learn about learning them, watching them in the maze when you should be studying them in the wild? And I'm thinking about that now about you, you talk about that uh, the honeybees in our boxes that we keep them, they're sort of the lab rats of science study. Could we learn a whole lot more from bees by studying the ones that are in the wild? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, we can learn a lot as scientists or naturalists by watching bees in the wild. Although for some of these studies, we need to bring them into the lab where we can control some of the different stimuli that they're responding to. Hmm. Tell us about what we, in the short time we have left here, what we as individuals can do to make the world a more bee-friendly place. Yeah, the main thing we need to do is to stop blasting them with insecticides. In the United States, I think there are only three states that have banned the neonics, neonicotinoids, which are really uh, nasty systemic insecticides. And they show up in lawn care products and they're also in potted nursery plants that we buy. Um, many countries in the EU have banned them, and they should be banned here. And there, there are other things that are harming bees that we're just now learning about. Um, I'm working with a group of scientists at Cornell and the University of California and other universities. And We've, we found that while herbicides, which are weed killers, are generally not harmful to adult bees, and this is something that the, that industry will tell you, we find that herbicides, when they're brought back into the nests of these solitary or social bees, that they are eaten by the larval bees, the bee grubs, and they knock out the helpful bacteria and yeasts that 
help them. I mean, just like we need mm. uh, probiotic, helpful microbes to live a healthy, happy life, um, bees bees need those too. Yeah, they need a they need a healthy microbiome, just like we yeah, do. Yeah, they do need a healthy microbiome. the The simplest thing that you can do if you're not blasting things with insecticides or to plant a diversity of flowers, especially native wildflowers that are adapted to the local region where you live. And so that these are appearing and flowering in most months of the year, uh, because some of these, especially social bee colonies, are long-lived. Most of those bees that I talked about that are ground nesting need some bare ground. So if you don't put down plastic sheeting uh, to keep down weeds, or you don't put in gravel or redwood chips or something like that as a mulch, um, that'll help bees a lot too because they need that bare ground to nest in. That's something good to know for this planting season. I'm going to keep some of my spaces bare. Thank you, Steve. This is fascinating. It's a great new book. Thanks so much, Ira. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Steve Buckman, pollination ecologist and author of What a Bee Knows, a great book. I highly recommend it.